part of the danger with psychedelics is that you can bypass protectors and get to exiles without permission and then have a backlash. And then that scares everybody, including the facilitator. But if you, you know, if you think of it through the IFS lens, it's just a protector backlashing. So let's get to know it and calm it down and apologize to it for bypassing it. And everybody gets, gets okay then. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we are joined by Dr. Richard Schwartz, the person who developed the therapeutic approach called Internal Family Systems. Now, before you go about thinking this sounds like a great approach to let your parents know just how much they failed you and how your siblings are all jerks, take a breath. That's not what Internal Family Systems is about. Rather, it's an approach that recognizes all the multidimensional aspects of who we are and, in the truest sense of the word, in my opinion, gives voice to them. We'll dive into more details in the conversation. Joining in the conversation today, as always, is our very own Dr. Mike Dow, a field trip therapist and co-author of our forthcoming book, The Ketamine Breakthrough, who uses IFS as part of our ketamine-assisted therapy work at Field Trip. Party on, Mike. Party on, Dick. Are you ready to go field tripping? And I have no idea why I brought in that Wayne's World reference, but as I was preparing for it last night, it felt good. So I'm just going to drop it in there and stand by it. How are you guys doing today? Well, I love that intro, Ronan. So. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so let's hop right into it. So probably to the great dismay of Conrad and Macy, our great producers who put in a lot of effort to preparing for this podcast, I took out the description of what IFS actually is because I wanted to hear it directly from your mouth, Dick. Um, so what exactly is IFS? That's changed over the years. Uh, originally, it was going to be, or is, was, a model of psychotherapy, but it's kind of outgrown that. It's it's still used a lot in therapy, but it's become a kind of life practice or spiritual practice or just a, a different paradigm for understanding the mind and relating for, to the mind. So it's all of that. And can you go into a little bit more depth in terms of understanding some of the, the frameworks? Um, and I know there's the eight C's and all the other different acronyms not acronyms, but uh, references that you use, but it'd be great to give everybody a kind of more in-depth understanding of it. And if it's helpful, maybe even explain where it came from, which was my next question, which was uh, like most things that came out of the 1980s that are worth forgetting. Um, apologies to people born in the decade, but I'm going to point to Millie Vanilli and rest my case. But IFS is something that has stood the test of time. So what was the kernel of inspiration that led to it? So may maybe talk about the how you came about it, and, and then if you can talk about the framework in a little bit more detail, that'd be great. Yeah, happy to do that. So I'm trained as a family therapist, and uh, I have a PhD in that. And that was back in the day when we family therapists were pretty obnoxious, and we thought we'd found the Holy Grail, and that people who mucked around in the inner world were wasting their time. And I wanted to prove that. So I gathered together a bunch of uh, actually bulimic kids at this institute I was working at in and did an outcome study and found that I could reorganize the families just right, and the, the kids kept binging and purging. So out of frustration, I began asking why, and they started talking this, at the time, strange language of parts. A couple of them in particular were very articulate about it and would say some version of, 
I've got this critic that just drives me crazy. It calls me names all day. And then there's another part that comes up when I'm really hard on myself that makes me feel worthless and empty and alone and young. And then to get away from that, in comes the binge and kind of takes me out. But that only lasts so long. And then the critic comes back even even worse because of the binge. And then that makes me feel worthless again. So the, the binge has to come back. And as a systems person, you know, because that's what I was studying in families were these sequences of interaction that kept self-perpetuating. And so I got intrigued. And long story short, you know, initially I made the mistake of assuming what the rest of the field assumed about what these were, which is the critics of some kind of internalized parental voice and the binge is an out-of-control impulse. And so I was having my clients fight with the critic and control the binge. They were getting worse, but I didn't know what else to do. And then, again, long story short, I learned that they aren't what they seemed and that they deserve to be listened to. And so then I started just trying to help my clients get curious and and stay open and ask questions of these parts and have these inner dialogues. And again, I'm a family therapist, so I was doing that with four and five different parts and and just trying to get a sense of the system inside of people. So that's the onset of the idea that people are multiple, which is a kind of radical position in the field that actually we're born with what I call parts, other systems call subpersonalities or ego states, and that it's a good thing because they're all valuable and they they have wonderful qualities, uh, resources, to help us in our lives. So what I came to learn is that we're all multiple personalities in the sense that we all have these parts. They're not the product of trauma. The the mind isn't unitary. It actually is naturally multiple and uh, because they're all valuable. And and from my point of view, we're born with them, either manifest or, or dormant. And so that's all great. And if you were born in a perfectly harmonious family and a perfectly harmonious culture, you wouldn't even notice them because they'd all be in their valuable roles just helping you in your life. You might notice them as thoughts and stuff, but because we're not, they get forced out of their naturally valuable states into roles that can be quite extreme and damaging sometimes by trauma or by what in our field is called attachment um, attachment injuries or by being bullied or abandoned or whatever bad happened to you. Uh, and they get frozen in time as if what happened back in that trauma is still happening and they think you're still five years old and they got to protect you in the way they did back then. And, and they also, from the traumas, pick up what I'm going to call burdens, the definition of which are extreme emotions and beliefs that came into you during the trauma and attach to these parts almost like a virus and and then drive the way they operate. So too often our culture and our psychotherapies presume that the part is the burden that it carries and try to fight with it or get rid of it. And that just makes them more extreme. So yeah, it's a it's a kind of radical position in uh, our culture and our field that Everyone's a multiple personality, and that it's a good thing. And 
like I was saying, I didn't, this didn't come out of my mind. This, this came from hearing about all this from clients and taking them seriously. And if I had, if I had an advantage, it was that I didn't study psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapies because I would have come with a lot of presumptions about what they were. But because I assiduously avoided that, I really had to trust what my clients were saying and, and listen to their part. So an even bigger part of the model, I think the biggest discovery of the model is that in addition to these parts that I'm talking about, we all are, are at our core, our essence, what I call the self with a capital S. And that's another one I just stumbled onto because I was, like I said, I was trying to get these dialogues to happen. Once I got hip to the fact they weren't what they seemed, that they deserved to be listened to, I was, as a family therapist, trying to have these inner family discussions where I might have you, Mike, talk to your critic and listen to it rather than fight with it. And I'd be doing that and it's going okay. And then suddenly you're furious with the critic. The critic gets defensive and it all breaks down. And it reminded me of family sessions where I might be working with two family members and one of them gets angry at the other. And we were taught to look around the room and see if there isn't somebody covertly siding with the one who's angry and is in alliance with that person against the third. And often that was true. And we found if we could get that third party to just stay out of it and move back even in the room, the conversation would go okay between the other two. And I thought maybe the same thing's happening in this inner world. Maybe as I'm trying to have my client talk to their critic in this case, some part that hates the critics jumped in and is doing the talking. So I would, I would say, Mike, could you find the one who's so angry at the critic and could you ask it to just relax, just chill for a little while and let us have a, a conversation, let us stay curious about the critic? And to my amazement, clients would say, okay, it did. And then I'd say, now how do you feel toward the critic? And it'd be an entirely different answer. Much of the time, spontaneously, in the direction of, I'm just kind of curious about why it's calling me names. Said with calm, confidence, even compassion, and certainly curiosity. And in that state, the conversation would go well. The critic would reveal its secret history of how it got into this role, and we could actually do a lot to help it out of that role. And when I would try this with other clients, the simple act of getting these other parts to open space inside, it was like the same person would pop out with those same C-word qualities of calm, confidence, curiosity, compassion. And then also, as I started studying it more, courage, clarity, creativity, and connectedness. So those are what we call the eight C's of self-leadership. And it turns out now, 40 years later, thousands of people using this later, that self with a capital S, with those qualities, isn't everybody, can't be damaged, knows how to heal, both internally and externally, and is just beneath the surface of these parts, such that when they open space, it pops out spontaneously. So that's a big deal. That, that and again, I just stumbled onto that discovery. So, you know, I was like everybody else, and I thought, well, maybe the critic's okay, but is a part that molested a little kid okay? Or is a, you know, I, I would actually seek out 
populations so I could test it. And yeah, what I found over and over was when approached from this place of curiosity, all of these parts, even those who've done heinous things, would reveal their secret histories of, of, of where they got their roles in the trauma and how they hate what they're doing, but they think it's absolutely necessary to, to keep the client safe. And uh, that was mind-blowing to me because, uh, you know, it's really hard to understand how somebody who molests little kids, how that part could have any good intention. But, you know, as you do it, you learn that that's true. That, so I, my most recent book is called No Bad Parts because that's absolutely over these 40 years what we found. And so, yeah, this is very counter not just to CBT, but to most other therapies that actually try to help people at best ignore these parts and at worst try to get rid of them or, or fight with them all the time. Just um, taking a little bit of a step back to make sure that we're articulating this in a way that if someone's not familiar with IFS, which I wasn't until the last year or so, uh, has a decent comprehension uh, of everything we're talking about before we go forward. The premise of IFS is that each of us has a self, you know, that's characterized by the eight C's of calm, compassion, curiosity, confidence, courage, clarity, connectedness. And that's only seven. Uh, I don't remember what the eighth is um, that exists in all of us, but we also have parts, you know, uh, an inner critic and an inner child. Um, various other parts, and that through life experiences, probably in particular trauma, some of those parts kind of crystallize. They they stop growing, or they take on the identity of the person at that age or at some age group, and and then they often get attached with burdens, which are extreme emotions. So um, one that speaks to me very often is the. You know the inner child who says i'm I'm worthless um I'm not, I'm not lovable or anything along those lines, and it holds on to that emotion and then Mike, you touched on a couple of terms that I think are are worth unpacking is that it sounds like these parts often get categorized into three uh different roles there's the exiles protectors and and the managers. Do I have that correct? Can you unpack that a little bit so as I'm hearing from clients about all these parts. As a systems guy, I'm trying to get a map to the territory and understand what kind of roles they play relative to each other. And I'm hearing over and over about what we now call exiled parts, which were these, before they were hurt, sort of playful, carefree, loving, creative, wonderful inner children. But they were also the most vulnerable parts. And so when you get betrayed or rejected or abused in some form, they're the ones who take on the most extreme burdens of worthlessness, like you talked about, Rona, or terror or emotional pain uh, and so on. And once they carry those burdens, they have the power to make us feel all that all the time. And often they're just trying to get our attention also. So because we don't want to feel that again, we tend to lock them away inside in inner basements or abysses or something. And once you 
turn them into exiles that way, which, you know, for them, it's insult to injury. The injury was the trauma. And the insult is now you're locking them up just because they got hurt. And you're doing it thinking you're just moving on from the memories, sensations, emotions, and beliefs. And everybody, because this is a rugged individualist culture, everybody around you is telling you, just let go. Don't look back. Just let it go. So we all have a bunch of exiles. And when you have a bunch of exiles, you feel a lot more delicate and the world seems a lot more dangerous because so many things could trigger them. And when they're triggered, it's like flames of emotion bursting out that threaten to totally take you out and consume you. So a bunch of other parts are forced out of their naturally valuable states to become protectors. And some of them protect us by trying to manage the outside world so that nothing happens that might trigger the exiles. So maybe they're trying to control your relationships so no one gets close enough to hurt you or they're controlling your appearance so that no one rejects you, or your performance so you get a lot of accolades to counter the worthlessness. Some of them become inner critics because they're yelling at you, calling you names to try and motivate you to do better, or even sometimes trying to run down your confidence so you don't take risks and you stay safe that way. So there's a lot, a lot of different, what we call manager roles, and what these parts, and again, it's the roles they're cast into, it's not who they are. But they all have in common the desire to preempt anything that might trigger your exiles and keep them contained and also please people mostly that try to do. So we all have a bunch of managers that we often call the ego that really is what got us safe and to these uh, whatever position of uh, success we have. And they're working all the time. They're really the hardest working parts in show business. And and despite their work, the world still has a way of triggering our exiles. And when that happens, like I said, it's this big flash of emotional pain or shame or terror. And so that's a big emergency. And there's another set of parts whose job it is to immediately deal with that emergency and either get you higher than those flames or douse them with some substance or distract you until they burn themselves out. So we call them firefighters because they're fighting the fire, the raw fire of exile emotion. And so most all of us have those three groups. Again, it's really two groups, the exiles and the protectors, and managers and firefighters are subgroups of the protectors. You know, the different diagnoses that we have from the DSM, you know, the Mental Health Bible, are really just fairly accurate descriptions of the different clusters of parts, which is a very non-pathologized way of understanding mental problems. You know, it turns out that fairly readily, most everybody, if I ask, can notice where they experience the part in their body or around their body. And that becomes a, a nice sort of anchor point where if I were to have you say, Ronan, I was working with you and and that worthlessness. So I might say, okay, focus on that feeling and find it in your body or around your body. And it's likely, you know, a lot of people find that in their gut, someplace like that. And then from there, I would have you ask it some questions, but I would have you just direct the question to that place in your body and wait 
and focus on that place in your body to see what comes back. And we would ask the thinking parts of you that want to speculate or figure it out to really give us a break and just wait until you get something coming back from that place in the body. You know, when I first heard Michael Mithoffer, whose name I'm sure you know, um, is an IFS therapist. And uh, even before he got into all the psychedelics and MDMA, and he started telling me about his experiences, and and he actually kept track in the early days of how often, again, without any cueing from him, how often people, after they took the MDMA, MDMA would start seeing parts and start interacting with them and would do it for himself. And it was 80% of his you know, high-dose MDMA sample would do that. So I got intrigued by that. Then I started to look for a way I could try it out. And I found somebody who could prescribe, uh, I mean, uh, ketamine for me. And I had several ketamine, high-dose ketamine experiences, which uh, <laughs> were wild, just really wild, and did wind up doing some work with parts. But in some of them, it just felt like, because all along, not all along, but at some point, I realized that what I'm calling self isn't some kind of psychological thing. It's a much more spiritual thing. and that. It's a drop of the big ocean that we carry inside of us, but that there is this big self that you can access through meditation, but also through, in my case, through uh, ketamine. And so, because I would totally leave my body and just enter the vast non-dual in a, in a blissful way. And even as I was coming back, people listening to me would hear me say, Really? Do I have to come back? You know, and oh, there's so much more. And when I came back, I could be with my parts in a different way because I just would come back in so much self. Because it seemed like the the medicine was putting my managers to sleep somehow. So I was just embodied in this uh, all these sea words, and that attracted all my exiles to come in and get attention. So. That those experiences made me even more intrigued, and so I I did a six day uh, retreat for people uh, with a guy named Phil Wolfson, who is as you know the ketamine maven, and so that was amazing. That I mean the the way that people could so quickly access self and then on lotos actually lotos ketamine. And then in like 15 minutes, could do life-changing work. So all of those combined to make me really excited about the combination of IFS and psychedelics. I was going to save this for later, but while we're there, I was wondering, um, and, and I know I think Conrad had asked your assistant, Dick, if we could do a session with me you know, on, on the podcast. Are, are you open to that? Totally. Um, or, Happy to do I, it. That'd be cool, and uh, yeah, I, I I would welcome that. So, you um, want to do it now, or you want to on another time? Let's do it now. I mean, if you're okay with that, yeah, um, I can run over if we need to. So, okay, great. So, is there a place you'd like to start, Ronan? Yeah, and and I may have gone. <laughs> so so 
two weeks ago, I was in Hudson, New York, working with Gita Vade and, and Bessel van der Kolk, and we were pairing a uh, psychodrama um, with, uh, with ketamine, you know, to explore what happened there. And it was pretty cool. And one of the interesting things, and sorry, I'm giving a little bit of a tangent, but I watched some people go through the psychodrama experience and I could see them over intellectualizing it, right? Trying to find the language of all the other therapy that they were trying to do instead of getting to the raw emotion that certainly I felt needed to come out. Um, and I, I, so I'm, I'm a little bit guilty of this because as I was preparing uh, for this interview, um, you know, I was thinking about it and actually there's been, you know, two sources, one real source of a lot of friction in my life, which is, um, anytime someone close to me gets mad at me for something, whether deserved or it's just something hitting their trigger, it creates a res one of two responses in me. One is like just total collapse. Like I feel a pit in my stomach and, and then I'm just ruminating on it over and over and over again about why like they shouldn't be mad or anything along those lines. Um, and, 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 and yeah. And then, or the other one, and, and this happened on the weekend, uh, pure rage like just how dare you fucking say that to me um totally offside i'm not accepting that that that's bullshit uh i'm okay i'm pretty pretty confident in self-censoring myself so even though that's the emotional reaction that's not necessarily what comes out of my mouth but it's the same kind of trigger which is when someone gets mad at me it, it really it really triggers something uh inside of me and so Again, anticipating that we're going to have this conversation, I was thinking about it being like, where do I feel that? It's like, it's right through my chest and into my shoulders, like just a hot rage kind of like up just above around where the heart is. Um, that's when it's the rage one. And then if it's the pit of the stomach one, it's like really just in my stomach, like a, a ball of anxiety. Great. So you've already done, you're already halfway there. So <laughs> Typically, would want to start with the rage because we start with protectors before we go to exiles. Okay. So, is that okay? Yep. So, find, yeah, you found it. So, as you notice it there in your body, how do you feel toward it? It's scary, like overwhelming. Scary. And I couldn't hear the second thing you said. It feels like it could be overwhelming. Yeah. Okay. So, I can understand that, but we're going to ask the parts who are afraid of it to give us the space to get to know it. And I can make sure it's not overwhelming. So just see if the ones who are so scared of it could maybe go into a safe waiting room or something in there until we're done and ask, ask them to let you and me help this rage and deal with it. Yeah. Okay. How do you feel toward the rage now? I felt the... I felt like the, the tension that was kind of in here dissipate a bit. Good. But how do you feel toward it? It's not as scary. Good. Do you feel open to getting to know it? Yep. All right, good. So let it know that. And yeah, just ask what it wants you to know about itself. And don't think of the answer, Ronan. Just wait and see what comes to you from that place in your body. The words, I'm better than people think I am, mm -hmm. came up. Okay. And how do you feel toward it as you hear that? Understanding. Let it know. 
that that makes sense, that it's it's really enraged that people think less of you than you are. Is that right? Okay. And how's it reacting to being heard and understood by you better? It feels like um, its guard went down. Good. Kind of wants a hug. Could you give it a hug? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just tell me how it reacts as you hug it. Feels like it got softer. Good. Yeah, so let's just hang out with it in this loving way for a little while until it starts to trust it. And as you do that, you can see if there's anything else it wants you to know about itself. The words, I'm doing okay, came up. Say it again? I'm doing okay. It's saying you're doing okay. It's saying it's saying it's doing okay. But it's doing okay. Okay. That's good to know. Ask if it's afraid that anything might happen if it wasn't so angry. Like, is it protecting somebody else in there, or is it polarized with somebody? I'm not getting much. Okay, that's fine. But you're still hugging it, or have you lost contact? No, I'm still hugging it. All right, good. Yeah, so again, we're just going to stay in this loving way with it. We'll keep hugging it and you know, let it know it really has been trying to prove that you're better than people think. And it's really angry they think that. And see if there's anything more it wants you to get about itself. I'm strong. It says you're, it's strong? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Let it know you get that. That right now, anyway, you kind of appreciate its strength. And if it feels sincere, Ronan, you could even apologize to it for being so afraid of it all this time and trying to stay away from it and just see how it reacts to that. I got the sense of it gripping me tighter. Good. A it's, deeper hug. it's really good. And then this is optional too, but you could ask if it's stuck somewhere in the past that it wants to show you and wants you to know about, and then just wait and see what comes. A memory of um, when I was in grade 13, my girlfriend at the time, it was a rocky relationship, and I found out that she had cheated on me. I remember I was out walking my dog that night being so angry. I didn't know what to do. So I was swinging my arms around uh, at a complete loss. And how are you feeling toward that boy as you see him there, the 13-year-old? I have compassion for him. Let him know. Let him know you see what that betrayal did to him. You have a lot of compassion for that. See how he reacts to your compassion. The, the boy or the protector? The boy. He calmed down. Good. Still breathing pretty deeply, but calmed down. And tell him, if this is true, tell him you're ready to really feel and see and sense what that was like for him. Everything he wants you to get about how bad it was. Surprised. He's surprised that anyone would care. He's surprised that anyone would care. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. But just let him know we do care. and We're there to help him. And we really want to know what he went through. He said, it hurts so bad. And then, why am I not good enough? Why am I not good enough? Yep. Yeah. yeah of course he would feel that way. But let him know it makes sense. He would wonder that. Let him know you're ready to know about the hurt, how bad it was. Okay. And ask him if he does feel like you're getting this now, or if there's more he needs you to feel or see or sense about it. No, that's it. 
Hi, Ronan, I want you now to go to him in that, that time period and be with him in the way he needed somebody. And just tell me when you're there with him. Okay. How are you being with him? We're just lying in the field. I was walking my dog. It's great. Kind of leaned up against each other. Really nice. And how was it for him to have you there? He's still upset about the hurt from the girl that feels supported in a way. And tell him he's not going to be alone anymore with this. Because you are going to be there for him and take care of him. And see if there's anything he wants you to do with him or for him back there before we take him to a good, safe place. He just wants to lie in comfort and enjoy yeah. the ease. Yeah. Is he ready to leave with you? Or does he want to lie there with you? He just wants to lie there. Okay. So let's just be with him there in this comfortable way as long as he needs that. He's smiling now. Good. And he wants you to stay there? No, he's ready to move on. All right. So ask him if he wants to come to your house there with you, uh, or if he wants to go to a fantasy place of his choice. He wants to go to the house. So tell me when he's there with you. Okay. He's there. Good. And let him know he never has to go back to that time, and you're going to be taking care of him now. And given that, see if he'd like to unload some of the feelings and beliefs he got back there. Yeah, he would. And ask him where he carries all that, in his body or on his body? Same same spot, kind of in the chest. Yeah. And ask what he'd like to give it all up to. Light, water, fire, wind, earth, anything else. Light. He wants to give it up to the light. All right, so bring the light in to be and have him be in the light. And just tell him to let all that out of his chest and let the light take it away till it's all gone. Okay. How does he feel without it? Took a deep breath and feels lighter. Yeah, good. And tell him if he'd like to, he can invite qualities into his body he'd like to have and just see if something comes into him now. The word compassion came up. Great. Okay, Ronan. And then let's invite that angry part to come in and see that that this boy isn't so hurt now and just see how it reacts. I got the sense of like curiosity, but kind of like fear-based curiosity being like, it's almost uncomfortable. Okay. So just stay with it, with its discomfort, and ask more about that. So unknown. This kind of healing is unknown, or, or what's unknown? To have that boy feel well? Yeah, to not have the, the feeling of the rage. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, so the, the rage is something that he gave up to the light? Is that true? The, the boy did, yeah. Oh, okay, great. All right. So there are parts that are nervous about giving that up. Is that right? Yep. Okay. And ask more about their fear about not having the rage there all the time. Besides, it's unknown. What, what else do they fear? Uh, I, think, I think it's like the role. What role do I play? Like, is this possible? And, and what does this mean for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let them know that this works. 
And so they're freed up now to think of a different role inside and just ask what they might like to do now instead. Fun. The word fun came up. Yeah. So they can they can be the parts that help you have fun. Does that help with their their concerns? Yep. Okay. There's still a bit of uncertainty, but um, some optimism associated with it. Yeah, good. And it'll take them a while to trust it, which is fine. And so before we stop, Ronan, just ask if there's anything else these parts or, or that boy wants us to know before we come back. No, they're too busy having fun now. That was the response I got. Good. Oh, yeah, you're still there. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I could actually feel like a smile coming across my face. I don't know if you could see that from your perspective or where my camera is relative to where I was sitting, but I could actually feel like the the joy starting to percolate through. That's fantastic. So thanks for being willing to to go there and in front of your audience. And uh, one thing before we shift, um, this will stick if you follow up. So the work takes some homework and maintenance. So if it's part of a meditation or something every day, you were to check with him and make sure he's still feeling okay and and remind these other parts they can be the fun parts now, then it'll stick if you do that for at least a month. All right. That was pretty cool. Usually I'm very quick to let my rational mind start to think through it and try and come up with the answers, but I feel like I was able to like lean into it and let, let go. So it come up. You totally were. Yeah. You totally did it. Having people in the prep sessions access their scared parts, the, the managers that are afraid to let go of control or afraid to leave their bodies or, and just listen to the fears and comfort the parts and get permission seems to make a big difference in the actual uh, the, the actual experience too. So that's another place I think IFS can play a big role. One of the things that I think can be so powerful, and, and I'd welcome your thoughts, but I think I know the answer here, is that when we were with uh, Bessel and, and Leisha, Leisha's guy who was there as well, the effects of psychodrama, just generally both ketamine, were so powerful, but it felt that the person, uh, the witness, I guess, is is the role uh, that Bessel was playing. It felt like his his sensory experience, his wisdom, was so critical to having that play out uh, in a way that was powerful. Because I, I, w- I was watching him very carefully, uh, and you know, he was bringing his the totality of his being into playing the role of the witness, which is great when you're a Bessel van der Kolk and has been doing this for a long, long time, um, but not so easy if you know, you're know you not that experienced or don't know someone who can effectively, I guess, curate the psychodrama. But with IFS, you know, this is something that can be self-moderated a lot of the time. You, know, you can lean into that and, and take yourself through the process. Yeah, I mean, you become that witness. That's right. Yourself, not only a witness, but also an active healer and leader inside or a good parent so that this is helping you become the good internal object rather than the therapist become that. So 
that's a, another, I think, advantage of IFS. This is a bit of a philosophical question, but it came up and it came up in the, in the psychodrama workshop. But why, why is, why is being witnessed seemingly such an essential part to, um, and I'm not using the part in the language of IFS, but in the context of, um, you know, healing, I guess, for lack of a better word, what, what is, what do, you, what do you think that the role of being witnessed is and why is it so important? You know, I think, you know, I, I like to extrapolate to larger systems too. If there's a bunch of exiled people in a country who were locked away because of, you know, something that happened, that's what they want. They want to be witnessed. They want you to, they want the, leaders of the country to get what they did and what how it felt and they want the repair and they they want you to feel what they went through so it's no different these are little from my point of view sacred inner beings who just like people want you to get what you did to them by locking them up and also what happened to them initially when they got hurt so it just makes sense to me yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And um, one, one of the other things that I, I found interesting, at least in your conversation with um, Tim Ferriss, is is you described that where he went to and that I where I went to, you know, it was it was a real world. I think you you said it, um, you know, not just a figment of our imagination. And I'm I'm, I'm kind of misquoting exactly, but so yeah, so you said a, a real other world. What do you mean by that? And can you elaborate on it? You know, it's very similar to the world that the shamans go to. That right. Indigenous cultures have been going there for centuries. And it's a real world in the sense that what happens in that world has profound consequences for your life. So it's it's not a fantasy. It's not something you're playing with. But And there are what I call the laws of inner physics, which often are quite different than the laws of external physics. But there are things you can and can't do. It has rules. And, you know, I've been studying that for 40 years now, uh, so I'm quite familiar with it. But it's amazing. Anybody that goes in there, they encounter the same world with the same rules. What are the rules of uh, the inner um, inner universe? I actually wrote about that. I can't remember if it's in the No Bad Parts or the, the IFS uh, therapy book. But there's a, you know, I think I identify about 10 of them that are different than this world. But just to give you some examples, so we didn't actually do this in your work, Ronan, but had that uh, boy wanted you to go and deal with this woman and let her know she shouldn't have done that or whatever should happen, I would have asked you to do that for him. Right. And he would have watched you do that for him. And in contrast to the outside world where you know, we can't change what happened. For that boy, you totally change what happened. You change his experience entirely. Right. So it's it's not true you can't change the past because in this inner world, you totally change the past. But that's just one example of many. When I did the ketamine workshop a couple of weeks ago, um, in the last experience, which was a bit of a higher dose, I'm, I'm a lightweight when it comes to ketamine. Very little does a lot to me. Uh, so it was about like 20, no, 30, 30 milligrams intramuscular. The experience itself was beautiful. There wasn't any sort of tangible concrete things, but I came out feeling very uncomfortable, you know, not nauseous, just like a whole bunch of blah, 
emotion, right? I couldn't, I couldn't articulate it. And when I've been in that place in the past, I've usually been able to act my way into understanding being like, I'll just try getting angry to see if anger feels right. Or I'll feel sad if sadness, feel, and none of that worked. Um, so I was just like feeling really uncomfortable. And what came up in the integration circle the next day was, um, I was saying this and, and part of my head was saying like, well, maybe I've like mined all the pain that I need to mine. And so now I'm just shoveling out of an empty well. And I think part of that was real. But then one of the facilitators, uh, a doctor named Steve Rizanke said, no, what you picked up was nonverbal or pre-verbal pain. You know, you picked up something from a pre-verbal era. And as soon as he said that, I started crying. So I knew he hit on something. Um, and, and so there are two questions that come out of this, which is how do you work with preverbal pain if it's hard to recognize it, articulate it, or anything along those lines in the context of IFS? And the second question is, are there limits to IFS that you've seen or or how do we think about what's within the realm and, and what may be outside of the realm of potential of IFS? So had I been sitting with you, I would have just had you focus on that blah feeling and get curious about it and then ask where it was stuck in the past. And you might've come to that same pre-verbal place. Uh, and then, yeah, we do a lot with pre-verbal parts and, and sometimes the witnessing isn't verbal at all. It's, it's really just feeling the sensations of what that baby went through or, or getting the emotions that you felt without a lot of, uh, visual even or without words and just doing that until he feels witnessed and then going in and getting him out so it's not a problem to work with preverbal parts and even we go into the uterus we work with uh, prenatal parts wow sometimes yeah and what was the second question what are the limits of ifs um you know, can it can it go too far? For example, this is a question that actually came from Sanjay, who uh, seems to have taken to doing the practice over and over and over again, and keeps on covering parts and 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 maybe even taking it to an OCD level of uncovering parts. So, you know, what are the limits and and what are the any precautions that people may want to consider bringing into it? The main precaution that I learned the hard way is to work with protectors first not even expecting them to change, just to work with them to learn about what they protect, which is often these exiles, and then to negotiate permission to go to the exiles rather than try to get to that pain or shame or terror right away and bypass protectors. And I learned that because I would work with clients and I would say, oh, I see there's a lot of pain and that was, we need to get to that. So we would get there and then they would have these big, what we call backlash reactions after the session. You know, I think part of the danger with psychedelics is that you can bypass protectors and get to exiles without permission and then have a backlash. And then that scares everybody, including the facilitator. And, but if you, you know, if you think of it through the IFS lens, it's just a protector backlashing. So let's get to know it and calm it down and apologize to it for bypassing it. And everybody gets, gets okay then. So it really helps to have this ecologically sensitive framework for this inner territory. That's fantastic. Um, 
you know, I think it's, it's great work. It's an area of interest, um, both from us at Field Trip as well as some of the other projects I'm involved with. So I'd, I'd love to pick up the conversation on, on those exercises, Dick, uh, after we finish recording. But um, I didn't want to ask, I have tons more questions, but I want to respect your time and I also have other things to get to. So there were two kind of broader questions, more philosophical questions that I'd like to turn your ear to. The fact that IFS is non-pathologizing, um, which, you know, personally I think is important. Um, and I, I'm just curious to know, you know, how how important is it in your mind that's non-pathologizing and how does that stack up with the rest of mental health, which by and large seems to really like pathologizing? And, you know, I, I think I saw, I follow uh, someone by the name of uh, James Davies on, on Twitter and just showed the number of SSRI, SSRI prescriptions and all that kind of stuff. And it feels almost destructive to make it pathologizing. Certainly, I think we're overdoing it, that everyone's got ADD or anxiety or depression or anything along those lines and denying the fact that some of these are just part of the human experience and, and don't need to be pathologized. So curious to know what your thoughts on, on that and how it fits within existing frameworks or at least the dominant framework in, I think, mental health. Yeah, you know, my position is sort of in between those two because, as I said earlier, like, let's take depression. So the DSM accurately describes the symptoms, but for me, the symptoms are parts. There's one part that can flatten you out so you don't care about anything and you don't want to do anything in your life, and and it's just trying to keep you from getting hurt again. It's trying to keep you down. So you don't take risks, and it's decided at some point the only safe way to do that is to make it so you don't care about anything. And then there's the critic who's yelling at you constantly for not doing things and and buys into the whole belief system in our culture that uh, you're choosing to be depressed and and you're you know you should be stronger and all that. And then you've got a bunch of raw raw exiles that would be hurt again if you did take risks to the outside world. And so we go to the depressed part and honor it for trying to protect everybody and negotiate permission to go to the exiles and heal the exiles, and now it doesn't have to be the depressed part. And then we go to the critic and help it out of its role. So it isn't that depression shouldn't be uh, seen as a problem, like it's you know, just normal part of life. Now, clinical depression is a problem. And this is a, like you're saying, non-pathologized way to know exactly how to work with that problem. And the culture really does the opposite. And so much of what you're saying about CBT and so on is to try to talk the depressed part out of doing what it's doing or to, you know, medicate it out of that. And not really heal anything, not really touch the exiles that are the problem to begin with. I'm not anti-medication. I'm anti-medication as the answer and the long-term answer. But there are times where you need that to, to get access to enough self to actually do some of this work. Totally. And that actually is a, a great parlay to my final question, which is, there's a lot about IFS that resonates with me, both in just the experience there, but in the framework and, and how it respects the totality of who we are and tries to bring compassion to it instead of trying to tamp it down and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things I struggle with is 
see depression and anxiety and instances of that increasing and increasing and increasing. Now, maybe that's just because we're putting more lens of it. So the more you look for something, the more you find it. But it does also feel to me that like there's something not working in our society that is leading to a lot of this. And if you look historically, probably the instances of trauma that I experience or Mike experiences or, or you experience is lower than it would have been 200 years ago where war and infant mortality and disease and all that kind of stuff uh, and, and what we would consider totally barbaric behaviors were much more commonplace back then. Um, it's hard to compare because we have no idea what the actual instances of depression were back then, but it does feel like it's getting worse and we're getting farther away from where we want to be as a society. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about if that's the case and if it is, what's, what's driving it? I agree that it is the case. And I think there are a lot of factors driving it. I, I do think it's sort of the product of the, <laughs> what I call legacy burdens that our culture carries and okay. how much exiling happens because of those burdens. And like, if you think of our country as an individual, the way I've been describing managers, firefighters, and exiles, this, this country has huge numbers of exiles. Uh, I've heard somewhere recently, 60% of the population lives paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. There's, there's huge terror, fear. There's huge sense of inequity because you see all these wealthy people and you feel like, why? <laughs> what are they? How are they better than me? And all that appeals to the, the parts of many people that want to support Donald Trump because he's going to stand up for them and, and uh, speak for them, their rage. And so you've got Trump as a firefighter and you've got a lot of, uh, you know, I could go on and on about the managers and our culture and, and the absence of self, really. So my eyes are not just on the prize of healing individuals. My eyes are on the prize of bringing a lot of self to the larger system as well. And I'm working with social activists and executive coaches and lot and, and psycho, you know, uh, psychedelic people. Uh, I'm just any way we can bring more self to this sphere. What I find in individuals is you can enter a system that looks totally hopeless and polarized and has the person totally paralyzed. And you get some kind of critical mass of self in it. And things just shift very quickly. And so that's that keeps me going and why it's exciting to talk to you guys because, you know, I, I think that, that you should probably share some version of that. I love that thought. That's a beautiful thought to end on. It gives, uh, I know a lot of people who feel hopeless in the current environment. And, uh, you know, if you can help people find more self in themselves, then it becomes a lot easier to find the greater self in the totality uh, of our society. Um, and so there's a lot to be optimistic about through that lens. So with that, let's uh, put a pin in this conversation. And I will say, Dick, thank you so much for making your time available to us. Thank you so much for taking me through that experience. Um, I could still feel like the, the lightness and and playfulness that's starting to emerge through that. And Mike, as always, thank you for everything you do uh, and joining us on this conversation. And with that, I will set you free to go back and continue to help more people find more self. And thank you once again. The great philosopher, 
Cookie Monster once said, Today, me will live in the moment, unless it's unpleasant, in which case, me will eat a cookie. Now, while the darkest layers of hell are reserved for anyone who denies the pleasures of a well-made cookie, after my conversation with Dick and Mike, I couldn't help but think Cookie Monster's approach to drown his sorrows in a cookie might just be misguided. Above all, what I love about internal family systems is that it recognizes and values all the many and varied experiences of life. This approach is so contrary to so much of our modern Western lives where everything ought to be groovy and when things aren't, we resort to medicating our feelings, denying them, drowning them, or outright avoiding them. But what if we embrace them? Instead of saying that the challenging feelings are bad, we instead recognize them as just being a part of life, a source of information, and in many ways, tools that have kept us alive to this point. Are these things we should castigate, reject, or drown in selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or simply get to know? It reminds me of the story that Joe Patitucci shared on one of our recent episodes, where instead of being frightened by the loud, angry, drunk guy in the street, he offered him a hug. And lo and fucking behold, it changed his life and the guy's life for the better. Well, I generally avoid trying to offer directive, assertive advice to people on the podcast, I'm going to break my rule here. Do this. Embrace all of your feelings, all of them, the miserable as well as the superb. Ask them questions. Find out who they are, what they are doing, and why they are there. There is nothing more human or humane you can do for yourself. And please, thank Dick for creating such an easy-to-follow way to do so. It will almost certainly make your life better. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review Field Tripping wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtriphealth.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page and associate producer is Macy Baker. Thank you for listening.